Hello, wonderful people. Welcome back to Sidecar Stories. My name is Sam. This week we are reading uh, chapters 21 and 22 of Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. Nate's asking, will there be either stream next week? Um, I mean, definitely no. Let's see, we're, we're leaving on Tuesday of next week. So yeah, no, none of either stream next week. Um, as a matter of fact, I would say until I'm back, uh, Frankenstein is probably fully on pause. I might try to catch, I mean, let's see, it's only going to be, so there's one stream I'm definitely skipping next week. And then the week after that, yeah, so I tell you what, it might be a while before we have another proper stream. I think, because uh, I'm definitely not going to be doing it next week, and then the one after that, I think I'm going to need to be, like, asleep in preparation for getting on a flight. So, I would say don't count on a, like I said, a proper stream uh, over the next two weeks, because I'm going to be traveling. I would love to, and I don't know when it's going to be, I don't know what it's going to be, but I would love to just, like, be on for a bit, probably at, at one point during that. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I, I also miss it when I'm away, I, and I recognize that uh, <laughs> uh, Kale Doss says, like, super sad face, it's become highlight of my Thursday nights. It is mine, too. <laughs> they say even my family knows not to try and contact me on Thursday nights. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, I, I miss it too, but I also very, very much miss mi familia, and so it's important that I, I have a, a good amount of time to spend with them. And this isn't going to be a spectacularly long trip back, so I'm going to try and get every moment I can with them. Linz, hello. Patty, B. Tawny. Tawny and Briar Moore, hello. Uh, Adam Baker, I hope you are, uh, I hope your Thursday improves with this. Um, and I think it's time we get into our review, shall we? It's been, it's been one week since you looked at me. <laughs> you guys can hear the, the clip-clopping of girlfriend feet and then the pitter-patter of tiny little cat feet as one of our cats decides that this is just too much movement in the room and he must flee under the bed now. So last week, um, we got we got some some significant info as to where Hagrid has been. It's been a mystery throughout this whole thing. We keep getting these regular updates. Where's Hagrid? He's not in his. He's not back yet. He's not in his hut. The the uh, the table of the teachers at Hogwarts looks so empty without his massive frame over there chowing down on turkey legs or some such. Lorax, excuse me. What now? I'm sorry, what now? Baygent's Barracks says, I'm still listening to past streams. I'm on Goblet of Fire, and this is my ninth time reading the series. Wow. That's a, that is a, that is a, well, a, a power reader, as it were. But uh, welcome. I look forward to having you caught up with the, the live stuff so we can have you in here for reels. But uh, thanks for dropping in. Oh, that, okay, thank you. Yeah, I don't know all the lyrics. <laughs> so... So that one caught me a bit by surprise. Also, there's a person. I know I know they don't have a they don't have the opportunity to catch him live, but Sam Rouser from Ohio. 
Hi, and how's it going? I hope work is going well. Whenever you catch up with this, whatever happens there. Uh, we do have, a, I would say, quite a few people up in Discord this week. And it's all good. And I tell you what, Discord is very important to me because it's important to me that if something were to happen to the channel, I still have a way to communicate with, with people. Um, and, you know, obviously, like, I, I, it's very tough to get people to transition from one platform to another. Um, I understand that. And uh, I've definitely got enough in there to sort of make a good start. But I did want to at least make this other option available such that if YouTube, you know, because YouTube is a tumultuous platform sometimes so I wanted to make sure that um, you know I had a, another way to, to talk to y'all it was also partially because I've had a lot of luck with discord by itself in the past it, it was a really stable way to do video chat um, and I was having some significant issues with YouTube so I figured it would be a good way to to sort of um, I don't know hedge my bets give a second option so um, the the, the 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 secondary option was there to provide an alternative that might not you know skip around as much it seems like you know and and this changes every month it seems like but my current settings are pretty good on on uh on my stream so i should be able to stream more smoothly it also helps that my roommates aren't in town right now so we don't have anybody else chomping on my wi-fi um, nom 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 live bot Hello, welcome to your first live stream. It's very nice to have you here. I got really derailed in my in my uh, my roundup. We find out that Hagrid has been off. Um, it, it seems like Hermione pretty much guessed it. Um, Hagrid has been off trying to get in contact with the giants. Now Hagrid is half giant himself, and he basically fills up any room that he's in. So it must be. An incredible experience meeting an actual full-blooded giant and apparently it's both incredible and incredibly terrifying because they have to bring them all sorts of gifts apparently they are very violent individuals in their sort of natural habitat um, there's been a lot of infighting in the giant community it seems let's see what else um, oh yeah, one of the one of the final things from the chapter prior to that was that Hagrid has excuse me, not Hagrid. Hagrid's been banned from playing Quidditch. Harry and Fred and George have been banned from playing Quidditch um, forever, as far as we can tell, um, because the High Inquisitor of Hogwarts, Dolores Umbridge, has decreed it so, and apparently she now has the authority to do that. But uh, yeah, chapter 20 was basically entirely about Hagrid's, um, Hagrid's trip to meet with the giants and whether or not he was successful. It seems that he was, it seems like a pretty rough, in, in, in RPG terms, I would call it a partial success. Um, very complicated. It seems that the people that he has, he has reached were... You know, he, he, he showed up, he did a good job with the first chief, and then halfway through his visit, that chief was killed, and there was a new chief, and this new chief was not so enthusiastic about Hagrid, um, or his traveling companion, Madame Maxime, because she did accompany Hagrid, and the two of them worked very well together, it seems. This new chief um, was a little bit more enthusiastic about meeting with dark wizards, it would seem. And so... 
Hagrid was able to get the word out. Um, he was able to to tell people that Dumbledore uh, wanted to make it, make it a sort of a formal statement that he believes that wizards were wrong uh, in their treatment of the giants back in the day, um, and even even nowadays. And uh, wants to wants to sort of reestablish goodwill between humans and giants, especially wizards and giants. Seems like the, the clan at large, especially with a very antagonistic chief, isn't going to be go going along with it, but Hagrid essentially just leaves it as, we hope that they heard us. We hope they heard the message that we brought, and that someday, if that chief isn't the one who's always, who's always in charge, or if something happens, then perhaps they'll remember what we came, the message that we came with. Uh, Kai is wondering how long we are streaming today. I would say we're probably going to be going slightly past 8 o'clock. Um, Jeff is saying Sam does have... Oh, <laughs> uh, I appreciate it, Jeff. Thank you very much. Eva's here, or Ava. Uh, Ava's saying, happy to be catching up. I've enjoyed all of your readings. Love the different voices. It gives the books a different point of view. And uh, I feel the exact same way about it. That's one of the reasons I do it. And that's one of the reasons why I do the uh, vintage sidecar streams on Tuesdays. Right now we're starting on, uh, we just did chapter one and two of Frankenstein, which is very exciting. But um, yeah, I think the voices bring something extra to it. That's what I learned when I was in school. Whenever we read them as a group, you know, I had a lot of, uh, I had a lot of great, um, great actors in my class in school and they really helped kind of bring bring out the 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 true value and the fascinating stories and the interesting characters from some of these classic works so if you got tuesdays free or even if you want to go just go check those out um they're actually the first <laughs> they're the first time i've ever made any uh any money doing this i made my first 28 cents from from uh <laughs> one of those videos so you guys were rolling in it now that's right. We're the, we're in the big time now. <laughs> I've also enabled super chat. I don't know anything about that or what it does um, because I when I do watch streamers, it's either YouTube vods of like cut down versions of streams or I watch directly on Twitch, which even that isn't very often. So I don't know. I know virtually nothing about it. Joseph says you should stream until twelve a.m. Yeah, I'm I'm. I would love to do more streaming, but my voice actually does start to give out even after about two hours. It's me, Scrooge McDuck. I'm going to have, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to get 28 pennies, and then I'm going to put them all into a room, and I'm going to dive into 28 pennies. <laughs> no, I think it's good. Um, I would love to be able to, you know, like if I if I eventually start to be able to get some some actual money off of these things, I would love to roll it back in and uh, be able to pay for uh, things like voice changers. I've actually got something I'm looking at right now um, to to help with some of the more interesting ones, like somebody that we will be meeting later on in this book. Um, it was my very first thought about it. So I'm I'm uh, I'm excited about the possibilities, but uh, yeah. If you want to really support the channel, go ahead and, and watch the Frankenstein stuff, um, or uh, you can you can check out. Um, there's a, a link in the YouTube description. But anyway, that's not why we're here. We're here to read Harry Potter tonight, and so that's what we're going to do, starting right now. Chapter Twenty One: The Eye of the Snake. 
Hermione plowed her way back to Hagrid's cabin through two feet of snow on Sunday morning. Harry and Ron wanted to go with her, but their mountain of homework had reached an alarming height again, so they remained, grudgingly, in the common room, trying to ignore the gleeful shouts drifting up from the grounds outside, where the students were enjoying themselves, skating on the frozen lake, tobogganing, and, worst of all, bewitching snowballs to zoom up to Gryffindor Tower and rap hard on the windows. Oi! bellowed Ron, finally losing patience and sticking his head out of the window. I'm a prefect, and if one more snowball hits this window, ouch! He withdrew his head sharply, his face covered in snow. It's Fred and George, he said bitterly, slamming the window behind him. Gits. Hermione returned from Hagrid's just before lunch, shivering slightly, her robes damp to the knees. So, said Ron, looking up when she entered, have you got all his lessons planned for him? Well, I tried, she said dully, sinking into a chair beside Harry. She pulled out her wand and gave it a complicated little wave so that hot air streamed out of the tip. Then she pointed it at her robes, which began to steam as they dried out. He wasn't even there when I arrived. I was knocking for at least half an hour. And then he came stumping out of the forest. Harry groaned. The Forbidden Forest was teeming with the kind of creatures most likely to get Hagrid sacked. What's he keeping in there? Did he say? he asked. No, said Hermione miserably. He says he wants them to be a surprise. I tried to explain about Umbridge, but he just doesn't get it. He keeps saying that nobody in the right mind would rather study gnarls than chimeras. Oh, I don't think he's caught a chimera, she added at the appalled look on Harry and Ron's faces. But it's not for lack of trying from what he said about how hard it is to get the eggs. I don't know how many times I've told him he's better off following Grubbly Plank's plan. I honestly don't think he listened to half of what I said. He's in a bit of a funny mood, you know. He still won't say how he got all of those injuries. Hagrid's reappearance at the staff table at breakfast the next day was not greeted by enthusiasm from all students. Some, like Fred, George, and Lee, roared with delight and sprinted up the aisle between the Gryffindor and Hufflepuff tables to wring Hagrid's enormous hand. Others, like Parvati and Lavender, exchanged gloomy looks and shook their heads. Harry knew that many of them preferred Professor Grubbly Plank's lessons, and the worst of it was that a very small, unbiased part of him knew that they had good reason. Grubbly Plank's idea of an interesting class was not one where there was a risk that somebody might have their head ripped off. It was with a certain amount of apprehension that Harry, Ron, and Hermione headed down to Hagrid's on Tuesday, heavily muffled against the cold. Harry was worried, not only about what Hagrid might have decided to teach them, but also about the rest of the class, particularly Malfoy and his cronies, and how they would behave if Umbridge was watching them. However, the High Inquisitor was nowhere to be seen as they struggled through the snow toward Hagrid, who stood waiting for them on the edge of the forest. He did not present a reassuring sight. The bruises that had been purple on Saturday night were now tinged with green and yellow, and some of his cuts still seemed to be bleeding. Harry could not understand this. Had Hagrid perhaps been attacked by some creature whose venom prevented the wounds that it inflicted from healing? As though to complete the ominous picture, Hagrid was carrying what looked like half of a dead cow over his shoulder. We're working in here today. <laughs> Sorry, gotta clear my throat. We're working in here today, Hagrid called happily to the approaching students. 
jerking his head back at the trees behind him. It's a bit more sheltered. Anyway, they prefer the dark. What prefers the dark? Harry heard Malfoy say sharply to Crabbe and Goyle, a trace of panic in his voice. What did he say prefers the dark, did you hear? Harry remembered that the only other occasion on which Malfoy had entered the forest before now, he had not been very brave then either. He smiled to himself. After the Quidditch match, anything that caused Malfoy discomfort was all right with him. Ready? said Hagrid cheerfully, looking around at the class. Right, well, I've been saving a trip into the forest for fifth year. I thought we'd go and see these creatures in their natural habitat. Now, what we're studying today is pretty rare. I reckon I'm the only person in Britain who's managed to train them. And you're sure that they're trained, are you? said Malfoy, the panic in his voice even more pronounced. Only it wouldn't be the first time that you brought wild stuff to class, would it? The Slytherins murmured agreement, and a few Gryffindors looked as though they thought Malfoy had a fair point, too. Uh, of course they're trained, said Hagrid, scowling and hoisting the dead cow a little higher on his shoulder. So what's happened to your face, then? demanded Malfoy. Mind your own business, said Hagrid angrily. Now if you've finished asking stupid questions, follow me. He turned and strode straight into the forest. Nobody seemed much disposed to follow. Harry glanced at Ron and Hermione, who sighed but nodded, and the three of them set off after Hagrid, leaving the rest of the class. They walked for about ten minutes, until they reached a place where the trees stood so closely together that it was dark as twilight, and there was no snow at all on the ground. With a grunt, Hagrid deposited his half-cow on the ground, stepped back and turned to face his class, most of whom were creeping from tree to tree toward him, peering around nervously, as though expecting to be set upon at any moment. "'Gather round! Gather round!' Hagrid encouraged. "'Now they'll be attracted by the smell of the meat, but I'm going to give them a call anyway, because they'll like to know that it's me.' He turned, shook his shaggy head to get the hair out of his face, and gave an odd shrieking cry that echoed through the dark trees, like the call of some monstrous bird. I'm gonna give it a shot. <laughs> Nobody laughed, except Sidecar Sam. Most of them looked too scared to make a sound. Haggard. <laughs> Hagrid gave the shrieking cry again. <laughs> A minute passed. <laughs> A minute passed in which the... <laughs> A minute passed in which I could do nothing except for laugh. A minute passed, in which the class continued to peer nervously over their shoulders and around trees for a first glimpse of whatever it was that was coming. And then, as, ha as Hagrid shook his hair back for the third time and expanded his enormous chest, Harry nodded Ron and pointed into the black space between two gnarled yew trees. 
A pair of blank, white, shining eyes were growing larger through the gloom. And a moment later, the dragonish face, neck, and then skeletal body of a great black winged horse emerged from the darkness. It surveyed the class for a few seconds, swishing its long black tail, and then bowed its head, and began to tear flesh from the dead cow with its pointed fangs. A great wave of relief broke over Harry. Here at last was proof that he had not imagined these creatures, that they were real. Haggard knew about them too. He looked eagerly at Ron, but Ron was still staring around in the trees, and after a few seconds he whispered, Why doesn't Hagrid call again? Most of the class were wearing expressions as confused and nervously expectant as Ron's, and were still gazing everywhere but at the horse standing feet from them. There were only two other people who seemed to be able to see them, a stringy Slytherin boy standing just behind Goyle, who was watching the horse eating with an expression of great distaste on his face, and Neville, whose eyes were following the swishing progress of the long black tail. "'Oh, oh, here comes another one,' said Haggard proudly, as a second black horse appeared out of the dark trees, folding its leathery wings closer to its body and dipping its head to gorge on the meat. "'Now, put your hands up. Who can see them?' Immensely pleased to feel that he was at last going to be able to understand the mystery of these horses— Harry raised his hand. Hagrid nodded at him. Yep, yep, I knew you'd be able to, Harry. He said seriously. And you too, Neville, eh? And... Excuse me, said Malfoy in a sneering voice, but what exactly are we supposed to be seeing? For an answer, Hagrid pointed at the cow carcass on the ground. The whole class stared at it for a few seconds, then several people gasped, and Parvati squealed. <coughs> Harry understood why. Bits of flesh were stripping themselves away from the bones and vanishing into thin air. Must have had a very odd look indeed. What's doing it? Parvati demanded in a terrified voice, retreating behind the nearest tree. What's eating that? That's trolls, said Hagrid proudly, and Hermione gave a soft... Oh, of comprehension at Harry's shoulder. Hogwarts has got a whole herd of them in here. Now, who knows? But they're really, really unlucky, interrupted Parvati, looking alarmed. They're supposed to bring all sorts of terrible misfortune on people who see them. Professor Trelawney told me once. No, 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 said Hagrid, chuckling. That's just superstition, that is. They're not unlucky, they're dead clever and useful. Of course, this lot don't get a lot of work. It's mainly just uh, uh, pulling the school carriages. Les Dumbledore's got a long journey and he doesn't want to apparate. And, oh, there's another couple. Look. Two more horses came quietly out of the trees, one of them passing very close to Parvati, who shivered and pressed herself closer to the tree, saying, I think I felt something. I think it's near me. Don't worry. Won't hurt you, said Hagrid patiently. Right. Now, who can tell me why some of you can see it and some of you can't? Hermione raised her hand. Go on, then, said Hagrid, beaming at her. The only people who can see Thestrals, she said, are people who have seen death. That's exactly right, said Hagrid solemnemly. Ten points to Gryffindor. Now, Thestrals, 
Him, him. Professor Umbridge had arrived. She was standing a few feet away from Harry, wearing her green hat and cloak again, her clipboard at the ready. Hagrid, who had never heard Umbridge's fake cough before, was gazing in some concern at the closest Thestral, evidently under the impression that it had made the sound. Him, him. Oh, hello, Hagrid said, smiling, having located the source of the noise. You received the note that I sent to your cabin this morning, said Umbridge, in the same loud, slow voice she had used with him early, earlier, as though she were addressing someone both foreign and very slow. Telling you that I would be inspecting your lesson. Oh, yeah, said Hagrid brightly. Uh, glad you found the place all right. Well, as you can see, or I don't know, can you? We're doing Thestrals today. I'm sorry, said Professor Umbridge loudly, cupping her hand over her ear and frowning. What did you say? Hagrid looked a little confused. Uh, Thestrals, he said loudly. Big, uh, winged horses, you know. He flapped his gigantic arms, hopefully. Professor Umbridge raised her eyebrows at him and muttered as she made a note on her clipboard. Has to resort to crude sign language. Well, uh, anyway, said Hagrid, turning back to the class and looking slightly flustered. Uh, what was I saying? Appears to have short, uh, poor short-term memory muttered Umbridge, loudly enough for everyone to hear her. Draco Malfoy looked as though Christmas had come a month early. Hermione, however, had turned scarlet with repressed rage. Oh, yeah, said Hagrid, throwing an uneasy glance at Umbridge's clipboard, but plowing on valiantly. Yeah, I was going to tell you how we came to have got a herd. Yeah, so we started off with a, a male and five females. This one, he patted the first horse to have appeared, Name a Tenebrous. He's my special favorite. First one born here in the forest. Are you aware, Umbridge said loudly, interrupting him, that the Ministry of Magic has classified Thestros as dangerous? Harry's heart sank like a stone, but Hagrid merely chuckled. <laughs> Thestros aren't dangerous, all right? They, they might take a bite out of you if you really annoy them. Shows signs of pleasure at the idea of violence, muttered Umbridge, scribbling on her clipboard again. No, come on, said Hagrid, looking a little anxious now. I mean, a dog will bite you if you bait it, don't... But uh, Thestrals have just got a bad reputation because of the death thing. People used to think that they were a bad omen, didn't they? Just didn't understand, did they? Umbridge did not answer. She finished writing her last note, then looked up at Hagrid and said, again very slowly and loudly, Please continue teaching as usual. I am going to walk. She mimed walking. Malfoy and Pansy Parkinson were having fits of silent laughter. Among the students, she pointed around at individual members of the class, and asked them questions. She pointed at her mouth to indicate talking. 
Hagrid stared at her, completely at a loss to understand why she was acting as though she did not understand normal English. Hermione had tears of fury in her eyes now. You hag! You evil hag! She whispered as Umbridge walked toward Pansy Parkinson. I know what you're doing, you awful, twisted, vicious... Uh, anyway, said Hagrid, clearly struggling to regain the flow of his lesson. So, Thestrals. Yeah, well, there's loads of good stuff about them. Do you find, said Professor Umbridge in a ringing voice to Pansy Parkinson, that you are able to understand Professor Hagrid when he talks? Just like Hermione, Pansy had tears in her eyes, but these were tears of laughter. Indeed, her answer was almost incoherent because she was trying to suppress her giggles. No, because it, well, it sounds like grunting a lot of the time. Umbridge scribbled on her clipboard. The few unbruised bits of Hagrid's face flushed, but he tried to act as though he had not heard Pansy's answer. Uh, yeah, good stuff about Thestrals. Well, once they're tamed, like this lot, you'll never be lost again. Amazing sense of direction. You just tell them where you want to go. Assuming they can understand you, of course, said Malfoy loudly, and Pansy Parkinson collapsed in a renewed fit of giggles. Professor Umbridge smiled indulgently at them, and then turned to Neville. You can see the Thestrals, Longbottom, can you? she said. Neville nodded. Who did you see die? she asked, her tone indifferent. By... by granddad, said Neville. And what do you think of them? she said, waving her stubby hands at the horses, who by now had stripped a great deal of the carcass to the bone. Um, said Neville nervously, with a glance at Hagrid. Well, there... Um, okay. Students are too intimidated to admit that they are frightened, muttered Umbridge, making another note on her clipboard. No, said Neville, looking upset. No, I'm not, no, I'm not scared of them. <laughs> and to Doss, um, Umbridge does indeed sound like Edna from The Incredibles. I took, a, I took a bit of an informal vote earlier on, and uh, Umbridge's voice is supposed to sound really high and, and high-pitched and girly, um, but uh, this one made it a little easier to distinguish between some of my female characters, because having a male voice box is a little tougher. It's quite all right, said Umbridge, patting Neville on the shoulder in what she evidently intended to be an understanding way, although her understanding smile looked more like a leer to Harry. Well, Hagrid, she turned to look up at him again, speaking once more in that loud, slow voice, I think I've got enough to be getting on with. You will receive, she mimed, taking something from the air in front of her, the results of your inspection, she pointed at the clipboard, in ten days' time. She held up ten stubby little fingers. Then, her smile wider and more toad-like than ever before beneath her green hat, she bustled from their midst, leaving Malfoy and Pansy Parkinson in fits of laughter. 
Hermione actually shaking with fury, and Neville looking confused and upset. But Attic says, uh, love Umbridge's voice. Discord is great. Love the chat. Thank you very much. Uh, Nathan, no, you cannot get another sample noise, because I know you'll do something awful, like turn it into a ringtone and send it to me. I don't trust you in the, le in the least. <laughs> it's the music that lulls me right to sleep. <laughs> that sweet Umbridge music. Yeah, I realize, you know, she's got a very calming, soothing voice. And so I understand if, if some of y'all are falling asleep to, to that Dolores Umbridge, High Inquisitor at Hogwarts for the Ministry of Magic. That foul, lying, twisting old gargoyle, stormed Hermione half an hour later. Half, half an hour later, as they made their way back up to the castle through the channels that they'd made earlier in the snow. You see what she's up to? It's a thing about half-breeds all over again. She's trying to make out Hagrid as some kind of dim-witted troll just because he had a giantess for a mother. And oh, it's not fair. That really wasn't a bad lesson at all. I mean, all right, if it had been about blast-ended scroots again, but festivals are fine. In fact, for Hagrid, they're really good. Umbridge said that they're dangerous, said Ron. Well, it's like Hagrid said, they can look after themselves, said Hermione impatiently. And I suppose a teacher like Grabbly Plank wouldn't usually throw them at us before NEWT levels, but, well, they are very interesting, aren't they? The way that some people can see them and some can't. I wish that I could. Do you? Harry asked her quietly. She looked suddenly horror-struck. Harry, I'm so sorry. No, of course I don't. That was a really stupid thing to say. It's okay, he said quickly. Don't worry. I'm surprised that so many people could see them, said Ron. Three in a class. Yeah, Weasley, we were just wondering, said a malicious voice. Unheard by any of them in the muffling snow, Malfoy, Crab, and Goyle were walking right along behind them. Do you reckon that if you saw someone snuff it, you'd be able to see the quaffle better? He, Crab, and Goyle roared with laughter as they pushed their way up to the castle, then broke into a chorus of, Weasley is our king! Ron's ears turned scarlet. Um, I'm going to go ahead and just say that was, I guess, Goyle's beautiful baritone. Ignore them! Just ignore them intoned Hermione, pulling out her wand and performing the charm to produce hot air again, so that she could melt an easier path through the untouched snow between them and the greenhouses. December arrived, bringing with it more snow and a positive avalanche of homework for the fifth years. Ron and Hermione's prefect duties also became more and more onerous as Christmas approached. They were called upon to supervise the decoration of the castle, you try putting up tinsel when Peeves has got the other end and trying to strangle you with it, said Ron, to watch over the first and second years, spending their break times inside because of the bitter cold. They're cheeky little snot rags, you know. We definitely weren't that rude when we were in first year. And to patrol the corridors in shifts with Argus Filch, who suspected that the holiday spirit might show itself in an outbreak of wizard duels. He's got dung for brains, that one said Ron furiously. 
They were so busy that Hermione had even stopped knitting elf hats and was fretting that she was down to her last three. All those poor elves I haven't set free yet, having to stay here over Christmas because there aren't enough hats. Harry, who had not yet had the heart to tell her that Dobby was taking everything she made, bent lower over his History of Magic essay. In any case, he did not want to think about Christmas. For the first time in his school career, he very much wanted to spend the holidays away from Hogwarts. Between his Quidditch ban and worry about whether or not Hagrid was going to be put on probation, he felt highly resentful toward the place at the moment. The only thing he really was looking forward to were the DA meetings, and they would have to stop over the holidays, as nearly everyone in the DA would be spending time with their families. Hermione was going skiing with her parents, something that greatly amused Ron, who had never heard of muggles strapping narrow strips of wood to their feet and sliding down mountains. Ron was going home to the burrow. Harry endured several weeks of envy before Ron said, in response to Harry, Harry, in response to Harry asking him how he was going to get home for Christmas, but you're coming too. Oh, didn't I say? Oh, Mum wrote and told me to invite you weeks ago. Hermione rolled her eyes, but Harry's spirits soared. The thought of the burrow at Christmas was wonderful, though slightly marred by Harry's guilty feeling that he would not be able to spend the holiday with Sirius. He wondered whether he could persuade Mrs. Weasley to invite his godfather for the festivities. Even though he doubted whether Dumbledore would permit Sirius to leave Grimald Place anyway, he could not help but think that Mrs. Weasley might not want him. They were so often at loggerheads. Sirius was not... Sirius had not contacted Harry at all since his last appearance in the fire. And although Harry knew that with Umbridge on constant watch it would be unwise to attempt to contact him, he did not want to think about Sirius alone in his mother's old house perhaps pulling a lonely cracker with Creature. Harry arrived early in the room of requirement for the last DA meeting before the holidays, and was very glad that he had, because when the lamps burst into light, he saw that Dobby had taken it upon himself to decorate the place for Christmas. He could tell that the elf had done it, because nobody else would have strung a hundred golden baubles from the ceiling, each showing a picture of Harry's face and bearing the legend, have a very hairy Christmas. <laughs> Harry had only just managed to get the last of them down before the door creaked open and Luna Lovegood entered, looking as dreamy as always. Hello, she said vaguely, looking around at what remained of the decorations. These are nice. Did you put them up? No, said Harry. It was Dobby the house elf. Mistletoe, said Luna dreamily, pointing at a large clump of white berries placed almost over Harry's head. He jumped out from underneath it. Good thinking, said Luna very seriously. It's often infested with nargles. Harry was saved the necessity of asking what nargles were by the arrival of Angelina, Katie, and Alicia. All three of them were breathless and looking very cold. Well said Angelina dully, pulling off her cloak and throwing it into a corner. We finally replaced you. Replaced me, said Harry blankly. You and Fred and George, she said impatiently. We've got another seeker. Who, said Harry quickly. Ginny Weasley, said Katie. Harry gaped at her. 
Yeah, I know, said Angelina, pulling out her wand and flexing her arm. But she's pretty good, actually. Nothing on you, of course, she said, throwing him a very dirty look. But as we can't have you... Harry bit back the retort he was longing to utter. Did she imagine for a second that he did not regret his expulsion from the team a hundred times more than she did? And what about Beatus? he asked, trying to keep his voice even. Uh, Andrew Kirk, said Alicia without enthusiasm, and Jack Sloper. Neither of them are brilliant, but compared to the rest of the idiots who turned up, the arrival of Ron, Hermione, and Neville brought this depressing discussion to an end, and within five minutes the room was full enough to prevent Harry from seeing Angelina's burning, reproachful looks. Okay, he said, calling them all to order. I thought that this evening we should just go over the stuff that we've done so far, because it's the last meeting before the holidays, and there's no point in starting anything new right before a three-week break. We're not starting anything new said Zacharias Smith, in a disgruntled whisper loud enough to carry through the room. If I'd known that, I wouldn't have even come. Well, we're all really sorry Harry didn't tell you then, said Fred loudly. Several people snickered. Harry saw Cho laughing and felt the familiar swooping sensation in his stomach, as though he had missed a step going downstairs. We can practice in pairs, said Harry. We'll start with the impediment drinks for ten minutes, and then we can get out the cushions and try stunning again. They all divided up obediently. Harry partnered Neville as usual. The room was soon full of intermittent cries of, Impedimentia! People froze for a minute or so, during which their partner would stare aimlessly around the room or watching other pairs at work, then would unfreeze and would take their turn at the jinks. Neville had improved beyond all recognition. After a while, when Harry had unfrozen three times in a row, he and Neville joined Ron and Hermione again so that they could walk around the room. Oh, excuse me. He had Neville join Ron and Hermione again so that he could walk around the room and watch the others. When he passed Cho, she beamed at him. He resisted the temptation to walk past her several more times. After ten minutes on the impediment jinx, they laid out the cushions all over the floor and started practicing stunning again. Space was really too confined to allow them all to work on this spell at once. Half of the group observed, while the other half... Oh, half of the group observed the others for a while, then swapped over. Hag... Oh boy. Suddenly very messy. Harry felt himself positively swelling with pride as he watched them all. True, Neville did stun Padme Patil rather than Dean, at whom he had been aiming, but it was a much closer miss than usual, and everyone else had made enormous progress. At the end of an hour, Harry called a halt. You're getting really good, he said, beaming around at them. When we get back from the holidays, we can start doing some of the big stuff, maybe even Patronuses. There was a murmur of excitement. The room began to clear in the usual twos and threes. Most people wished Harry a happy Christmas as they went. Feeling cheerful, he collected up the cushions with Ron and Hermione and stacked them neatly away. Ron and Hermione left before he did. He hung back a little, because Cho was still there and he was hoping Cho was still there and he was hoping to receive a Merry Christmas from her. 
No, you go on. He heard her say to her friend Marietta, and his heart gave a little jolt that seemed to take the region of his Adam's apple. He pretended to be straightening the cushion pile. He was quite sure that they were alone now, and waited for her to speak. Instead, he heard a hearty sniff. He turned and saw Cho standing in the middle of the room, tears pouring down her face. Whoa! He didn't know what to do. She was simply standing there, crying silently. What's up? He said feebly. She shook her head and wiped her eyes. <laughs> I think I just said he shook her head, but that's definitely not it. She shook her head and wiped her eyes on her sleeve. I'm, I'm sorry, she said thickly. I suppose it's just... Oh, learning all this stuff, it just makes me wonder whether... If, if he had known it all, if he'd still be alive. Harry's heart sank right back past its usual spot and settled somewhere around his navel. He ought to have known. She wanted to talk about Cedric. He did know this stuff, Harry said heavily. He was really good at it, or he never would have gotten to the middle of that maze. But if Voldemort really wants to kill you, you don't stand a chance. <laughs> she hiccuped at the sound of Voldemort's name, but stared at Harry without flinching. You survived it. You were just a baby, she said quietly. Yeah, well, said Harry wearily, moving toward the door. I don't know why, nor does anyone else, so it's nothing to be proud of. Oh, don't go, said Cho, sounding tearful again. I'm really sorry to get upset like this. I, I didn't mean to. <laughs> she hiccuped again. She was very pretty, even when her eyes were red and puffy. Harry felt thoroughly miserable. He'd have been so pleased with just a Merry Christmas. I know it must have been horrible for you, she said, mopping her eyes on her sleeve again. Me mentioning Cedric, when you saw him die, I, I suppose you just want to forget about it. Harry did not say anything to this. It was quite true, but he felt heartless saying it. You're a re really good teacher, you know, said Cho, with a watery smile. I've never been able to stand anything before. Thanks, said Harry awkwardly. They looked at each other for a long moment. Harry felt a burning desire to run from the room, and at the same time... A complete inability to move his feet. Mistletoe? said Joe quietly, pointing at the ceiling over his head. Yeah, said Harry. His mouth was very dry. It's probably full of nargles, though. What are nargles? No idea, said Harry. She had moved closer. His brain seemed to have been stunned. You'd have to ask Looney, uh, Luna, I mean. 
Cho made a funny noise halfway between a sob and a laugh. She was even nearer to him now. He could have counted the freckles on her nose. I... I really like you, Harry. He couldn't think. A tingling sensation was spreading through him, paralyzing his arms, legs, and brain. She was much too close. He could see every tear clinging to her eyelashes. That's right, they put a chapter break there. Yes, indeed, that's where they put the chapter break. Sorry, everyone. We've got a, actually a very interesting and detailed discussion of when certain people can or should be able to see Thestrals happening in YouTube chat. And then in Discord, uh, Lynn says, love the Scottish accent. Thank you very much. We've also got a very interesting discussion about Harry being a teacher. Um, I think this is fascinating because uh, I think Harry would probably make a decent teacher. I'm not going to say he would make the best teacher because we've seen, um, we've seen what it looks like when Harry gets angry. <laughs> It almost seems like, as far as the uh, the precedent that has been set before him, he might have made a he might make a better headmaster than a teacher, if that makes any sense. Someone who's good at defending the rights of others, but you know he does make a good instructor as well. Uh, he seems to be pretty set on becoming an Auror, and we don't know precisely what his whole life is like after, you know, after the uh, the, the the story contained in the Harry Potter books, but. Um, you know, when I went to college, I was planning to be a pastor. And so people can definitely make some fascinating changes. But, uh, yeah, I hope we can, I hope we can continue to talk about this after the chapter. Harry returned to the common room half an hour later to find Hermione and Ron in the best seats by the fire. Nearly everybody else had gone to bed. Hermione was writing a very long letter. She had already filled a half of a roll of parchment, which was dangling from the edge of the bed. Ron was lying on the hearth rug, trying to finish his transfiguration homework. What kept you? he asked. As Harry sank into the armchair next to Hermione's. Harry didn't answer. He was in a state of shock. Half of him wanted to tell Ron and Hermione what had just happened, but the other half wanted to take the secret with him to the grave. Are you all right, Harry? Hermione asked, peering at him over the top of her quill. Harry gave a half-hearted shrug. In truth, he didn't know whether he was all right or not. What's up? said Ron, hoisting himself onto his elbow to get a clearer view of Harry. What's happened? Harry didn't quite know how to set about telling them, and he still wasn't sure whether he wanted to. But just as he had decided not to say anything, Hermione took the matters out of his hand. Is it Cho? she said in a businesslike way. Did she corner you after the meeting? Numbly surprised, Harry nodded. Ron sniggered, breaking off when Hermione caught his eye. So? Wrong person. So, <laughs> uh, what did she want? He asked in a mock, casual voice. She... Harry began rather hoarsely. He cleared his throat and tried again. <clears throat> uh, she, 
Uh, did you kiss? Asked Hermione briskly. Ron sat up so fast he sent his ink bottle flying all over the rug. Disregarding this completely, he stared avidly at Harry. Well? He demanded. Ron looked from Ron... Harry looked from Ron's expression of mingled curiosity and hilarity to Hermione's slight frown and nodded. Ha! Ron made a triumphant gesture with his fist and went into a raucous peal of laughter that made several timid-looking second years over by the window side jump. A reluctant grin spread over Harry's face as he watched Ron rolling around on the hearthrug. Hermione gave Ron a look of deep disgust and returned to her letter. Well, Ron said finally, looking up at Harry. How, how was it? Harry considered for a moment. Wet, he said truthfully. Ron made a noise that might have indicated jubilation or disgust. It was hard to tell. Because she was crying, Harry continued heavily. Oh, said Ron his smile fading slightly. Are you that bad at kissing? I don't know, said Harry, who hadn't considered this and immediately felt rather worried. Maybe I am? Of course you're not, said Hermione absently, still scribbling away at her letter. How do you know? said Ron very sharply. Because Cho spends half her time crying these days, said Hermione vaguely. She does it at mealtimes, in the loo, all over the place. You'd think a bit of kissing would cheer her up, said Ron, grinning. Ron, said Hermione in a dignified voice, dipping the point of her quill into her ink pot. You are the most insensitive wart I have ever had the misfortune to meet. What is that supposed to mean? said Ron indignantly. What sort of person cries while someone is kissing them? Yeah, said Harry, slightly desperately. Who does? Hermione looked at the pair of them with an almost pitying expression on her face. Don't you understand how Cho is feeling at the moment? she asked. No, said Harry and Ron together. Hermione sighed and laid down her quill. Well, obviously she's very sad because of Cedric dying. Then I expect she's feeling confused because she liked Cedric and now she likes Harry. And so she can't work out who she likes best. And then she'll be feeling guilty, thinking that it's an insult to Cedric's memory to be kissing Harry at all. And then she'll be worrying about what else everyone might say about her if she starts going out with Harry. And she probably can't work out what her feelings toward Harry are anyway, because he was the one who was with Cedric when Cedric died. So there's going to be very mixed up and painful feelings. Oh, and she's probably afraid that she's going to be thrown off of the Ravenclaw Quidditch team because she's been flying so badly. A slightly stunned silence greeted the end of the speech, and Ron said, One person can't feel all that at once, they'd, ex they'd explode. Just because you've got the emotional range of a teaspoon doesn't mean we all have, said Hermione nastily, picking up her quill again. She was the one who started it, said Harry. I wouldn't have. She just sort of came at me, and next thing she's crying all over me, I didn't know what to do. I don't blame you, mate, said Ron, looking alarmed at the very thought. You just had to be nice to her, said Hermione, looking up anxiously. You were, weren't you? Well, said Harry, a kind of unpleasant heat creeping up his face. I sort of 
patted her on the back a bit. Hermione looked as though she were restraining herself from rolling her eyes with extreme difficulty. Well, I suppose it could have been worse, she said. Are you going to see her again? Well, I'll have to, won't I? said Harry. We've got DA meetings, haven't we? You know what I mean, said Hermione impatiently. Harry said nothing. Hermione's words opened up a whole new vista of frightening possibilities. He tried to imagine going somewhere with Cho, Hogsmeade perhaps, and being alone with her for hours at a time. Of course, she would have been expecting him to ask her out after what just happened. The thought made his stomach clench painfully. Oh, well, said Hermione distantly, burying her letter once more. Oh, oh well, said Hermione distantly, buried in her letter once more. You'll have plenty of opportunities to ask her. What if he doesn't want to ask her? said Ron, who had been watching Harry with an unusually shrewd expression on his face. Don't be silly, said Hermione vaguely. Harry's liked her for ages, haven't you, Harry? Harry did not answer. Yes, he had liked Cho for ages, but whenever he had imagined a scene involving the two of them, it had always featured a Cho who was enjoying herself, as opposed to a Cho who was sobbing uncontrollably into his shoulder. Who are you writing a novel to, anyway? Ron asked Hermione, trying to read a bit of the parchment now trailing on the floor. Hermione hitched it up out of sight. Victor. Crumb? How many other Victors do we know? Ron said nothing, but looked disgruntled. They sat in silence for another twenty minutes, Ron finishing his transfiguration essay with many snorts of impatience and crossings out, Hermione writing steadily to the very end of the parchment, rolling it up carefully and sealing it, and Harry staring into the fire, wishing more than anything that Sirius's head would appear there and give him some advice about girls. But the fire merely crackled lower and lower, until the red-hot embers crumbled into ash, and, looking around, Harry saw that there were yet again... Harry saw that they were, yet again, the last ones in the common room. Well? Night, said Hermione yawning widely as she set off up the girl's staircase. "'What does she see in Crumb?' Ron demanded, as he and Harry climbed the boy's staircase. "'Well,' said Harry, considering the matter, "'I suppose he's older, isn't it? "'And he is an international Quidditch player.' "'Yeah, but apart from that,' said Ron, sounding aggravated, "'I mean, he's a grouchy git, isn't he?' bit grouchy, yeah, said Harry, whose thoughts were still on Cho. They pulled off their robes and put on their pajamas in silence. Except my PDF here says pajamas. It's called foreshadowing, look it up. <laughs> Dean, Seamus, and Neville were already asleep. Harry put his glasses on the bedside table and got into his bed, but did not pull the hangings closed around his four-poster. Instead, he stared at the patch of starry sky visible through the window next to Neville's bed. If he had known, this time last night, that in twenty-four hours' time he would have kissed Cho Chang. Night, 
grunted Ron, somewhere to his right. Night, said Harry. Maybe next time. If there was a next time, she'd be a bit happier. He ought to have asked her out. She'd probably been expecting it and now was really angry with him. Or was she lying in bed, still crying about Cedric? He did not know what to think. Hermione's explanation had made it all seem more complicated rather than easier to understand. That's what they should teach us here, he thought, turning over onto his side. How girls' brains work. It'd be much more useful than divination, anyway. Neville snuffled in his sleep. <laughs> An owl hooted somewhere out in the night. Harry dreamed he was back in the DA room. Cho was accusing him of luring there under false pretenses. Cho was accusing him of luring her there under false pretenses. She said that he had promised her 150 chocolate frog cards if he showed up. If she showed up. Come on, come on. Harry protested. Cho shouted, Cedric gave me loads of chocolate frog cards, look! And she pulled out fistfuls of cards from inside her robes and threw them into the air. Then she turned to Hermione, who said, You did promise her, you know, Harry. I think you'd better give her something else instead. How about your fireboat? And Harry was protesting that he could not give Joe his fireboat because Umbridge had it. And anyway, the whole thing was ridiculous. He'd only come to the DA room to put up some Christmas baubles shaped like Dobby's head. The dream changed. His body felt smooth, powerful, and flexible. He was gliding between shining metal bars across dark, cold stone. He was flat against the door, against the floor, sliding along on his belly. It was dark, yet he could see objects around him shimmering in strange, vibrant colors. He was turning his head. At first glance, the corridor was empty, but no, a man was sitting on the floor ahead, his chin drooping to his chest, his outline gleaming in the dark. Harry put out his tongue. He tasted the man's scent on the air. He was alive but drowsy, sitting in front of a door at the end of the corridor. Harry longed to bite the man, but he must master the impulse. He had more important work to do. But the man was stirring. A silver cloak fell from his legs and he jumped from, jumped up to his feet. And Harry saw his vibrant, blurred outline towering above him, saw a wand withdrawn from a belt. He had no choice. He reared high from the floor and struck once, twice, three times, plunging his fangs deeply into the man's flesh feeling the ribs splinter beneath his jaws, feeling the warm gush of blood. The man was yelling in pain. Then he fell silent. He slumped back against the wall. Blood was splattering to the floor. His forehead hurt terribly. It was aching fit to burst. Hurry. Harry! Harry! He opened his eyes. Every inch of his body was covered in icy sweat. 
His bed covers were twisted all around him like a straitjacket. He felt as though a white-hot poker were being applied to his forehead. Ari! Ron was standing over him, looking extremely frightened. There were more figures at the foot of Harry's bed. He clutched his head in his hands. The pain was blinding him. He rolled right over and vomited over the edge of his mattress. He's really ill, said a scared voice. Should we call someone? Harry! Harry! He had to tell Ron. It was very important that he tell him. Taking great gulps of air, Harry pushed himself up in bed, willing himself not to throw up again. The pain half-blinding him. <laughs> Your dad! He panted, his chest heaving. Your dad's been attacked. W what? said Ron, uncomprehendingly. Your dad, he's been bitten. It's serious. There was blood everywhere. I'm going for help, said the same scared voice, and Harry heard footsteps running out of the dormitory. Harry, mate, said Ron uncertainly. You, you were just dreaming. No, said Harry furiously. It was crucial that Ron understand. It wasn't a dream. Not, not an ordinary dream. I was there. I, I saw it. I did it. He could hear Seamus and Dean muttering, but did not care. The pain in his forehead was subsiding quickly. Though he was still sweating and shivering feverishly, he retched again, and Ron leapt backward out of the way. Harry, you're not well, he said shakily. Neville's gone for some help. I'm fine, Harry choked, wiping his mouth with his pajamas and shaking uncontrollably. There's nothing wrong with me. It's your dad that you've got to worry about. We need to find out where he is. He's bleeding like mad. I, I was... It was a huge snake. He tried to get out of bed, but Ron pushed him back into it. Dean and Seamus were still whispering somewhere nearby. Whether one minute had passed or ten, Harry did not know. He simply sat there shaking, feeling the pain recede very slowly from his scar. Then there were hurried footsteps coming up the stairs, and he heard Neville's voice again. Over here, Professor! Professor McGonagall came hurrying into the dormitory in her tartan dressing gown. Her glasses perched lopsidedly on the bridge of her bony nose. What is it, Potter? Where does it hurt? He had never been so pleased to see her. It was a member of the Order of the Phoenix that he needed now, not someone fussing over him and prescribing useless potions. It's Ron's dad, he said, sitting up again. He's been attacked by a snake, and it's serious. I saw it happen. What do you mean you saw it happen? said Professor McGonagall, her dark eyebrows contracting. I don't know. I was asleep, and then I was there. You mean that you dreamed of this? No, said Harry angrily. Why would none of them understand? I was having a dream at first about something completely different, something stupid, and then this interrupted it. It was real. I didn't imagine it. Mr. Weasley was asleep on the floor, and he was attacked by a giant snake. There was a, a load of blood. He collapsed. Someone's got to find out where he is. Professor McGonagall was gazing at him through her lopsided spectacles, as though horrified at what she was seeing. I'm not lying and I'm not mad, Harry told her, his voice rising to a shout. I tell you, I saw it happen. I believe you, Potter, said Professor McGonagall curtly. Put on your dressing gown. 
We are going to see the headmaster. And that's the end of the chapter. Okay, I'm going on a break so, so fast. Because uh, I, I may have misunderestimated the amount of pages for tonight. So, we're going to break right now. I'll be back in five minutes. And we're back. Okay, quick beans. We're doing beans fast because, again, misunderestimation. So, let's do, the, let's do this beans thing, shall we? Whoops, rapid fire. You know what? Here's a question. Should we do the quickest version of beans? You're gonna do all five at the same time? I think, I think, uh, let's do some wish fulfillment for some, some certain people. I don't remember exactly who it was. I think, I think, um, Luke, Luke was, yeah, on that list. Oh, I think Luke was on that list. Um, ooh, Outsiders would be a great, great idea for a book. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'm gonna do all five beans at once. Here we go. I'm ready. No, I'm not. This is gonna be awful. For the sake of quick. I gotta quit creaking this mic stand around. Rat patoot. Okay, ready? Um, probably not. Camera's there. You should be able to see yourself up there. Um, that's the best angle I got, I guess. Do you know what would be great? What? Oh. Maybe I try to identify everything. Oh, good lord. <laughs> Beans are... Um, before I bite into these, beans are a, a celebration of the fact that you guys have been doing such a great job of telling other people about the streams. Initially, I was doing, let's see, yeah, like a bean for every three subscribers, and then now I'm in the the thousands. Or I'm I'm at I'm at about fifteen hundred, so there's no chance I'm catching up with all those beans. Uh, so instead, I just do it like this. But thank you all for telling everyone about the channel. If you know anyone who likes books or Harry Potter or classic <laughs> books and wants and has to read The Great Gatsby or Frankenstein for literature class, uh, send him here. All right, five beans. There's no way I'm hitting five. <laughs> I'm definitely picking up some of that citrus. I don't know if it's orange or... I don't think it's orange. Okay. 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 So. Hmm. I think there's a vomit in there. <laughs> yes. Okay, I'm better at this than I thought I was going to be. Oh! <laughs> Oh, it's hitting. I can't really even taste it, but it's giving me the... Oh, come on. God, I can't get rid of it until I'm done chewing five beans. Um, oh. I'm guessing there were there was a Sprite, maybe two. Or whatever, whatever it is. One puke. Oh, my lord. And beyond that, I straight up have no idea. There's one of the mellow ones, like, maybe marshmallow uh -uh. i think but then again i think that's uh, maybe cream soda then every time. no no cream soda either. no there's a little bit of bite to it so maybe some dr pepper yes okay um beyond that i really truly have no idea i'm tapping out what were the other two candy floss and root beer candy floss and root beer 
I might have been able to get root beer if I sat with it for a while, but candy floss, nope. There you go. I might need another one of these in this case. Water? Because that was rough. Because of the vomit? Hmm? Because of the vomit? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Thank you very much. Oh, that was, that was, you know what? I'm going to be honest. It wasn't the worst. I'm, I'm not going to, my aim is to never become one of those like, oh, every video you guys get the worst one of them all. Um, I'm going to be a straight shooter with y'all. That wasn't the worst one yet, but it was definitely not a pleasant combination. Um, and very unfortunately, that, that vomit uh, sort of aura the the vombiance. Oh no! <laughs> I'm the best. Oh, no. It's not so much a flavor. It's not. It's not so much a flavor as it is a vombiance. <laughs> oh, good grief! Doss, sorry for startling you. Yeah, the vombiance, it just sits. It's it's like um it's like a chemical trigger to say like, oh no, we are we are gonna throw up right now. That's what we're doing today. That's where we are at as a person, as a as a as a being, as an organic ship sailing through space. That's what we up to. Woof. All right. We gotta move quickly. So, last chapter. Hagrid has his first class uh, after being back and introduces the class to Thestrals, which are the the skeletal winged horses. And apparently they can only be seen by people who have witnessed death. Now we've had a, a very interesting discussion of that idea and, and what that means for this series pop up in YouTube chat. I would love to talk about that in the Discord afterward. Again, if you guys are interested in talking more after the stream is over, go ahead and hit up Discord. I would love to talk to you guys. In Discord, uh, y'all have been talking about uh, Harry as a teacher at Hogwarts. Uh, Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher, and I think there is a ton to talk about there, too. Unfortunately, I bit off more than I could chew tonight, so we are going into our next chapter. Um, final bit of review. They had their DA meeting, um, just the last one to kind of review before the holiday break, and at the end of the meeting, Cho Chang, in tears, talks to Harry a little bit about uh, Cedric, but apparently um, Cedric is not the only one on her mind, and despite her tears, she kisses Harry, or Harry kisses her. It, it was a bit of a fade to the ferns thing there. We didn't get exactly what happened, but um, we know that they did kiss, and that Harry is pretty dense uh, regarding. And and of course, you know, I absolutely was too at this age. Um, but uh, it's it's interesting to see the uh, the the kind of uh, the 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 self centeredness sort of benign self-centeredness that that exists in young people and how um that grows for for these characters over time so maybe we can talk about that too later on all right one from one from discord they say oh and they can go anywhere on command which is crazy oh yeah because because hagrid does mention that they are incredible navigators um lorax and i don't know lorax um what kind of pronouns do you like totally gender neutral as far as i can tell from green lorax 
Pete. Okay. Um, yeah. So Laura, uh, he also says, uh, could you ask a Thestral to take you to say Sirius Black? It's a good thing that Hagrid was the only one who, with a herd of these magically flying GPS horses. <laughs> Magic flying GPS horses, indeed. Um, <laughs> uh, that is their please, please. That is their Muggle name. That's really funny, but it's also a good question because I've wondered that about owls frequently as well. Because, you know, at various moments, the, oh yeah, Liberty Grace is saying the exact same thing right now. They're always able to find the right person. Okay, here we go. Chapter 22. Chapter 22. St. Mungo's Hospital for Magical Maladies and Injuries. Harry was so relieved she was taking him seriously that he did not hesitate but jumped out of bed at once, pulled on his dressing gown, and pushed his glasses back onto his nose. Weasley? You ought to come too, said Professor McGonagall. They followed Professor McGonagall past the silent figures of Neville, Dean, and Seamus, out of the dormitory, down the spiral staircase, into the common room, through the portrait hall, and off along the fat lady's moonlit corridor. Harry felt as though the panic inside him might spill over at any moment. He wanted to run, to yell for Dumbledore. Mr. Weasley was bleeding as they walked along, so sedately, and what if those fangs... Harry tried hard not to think my fangs had been poisonous. They passed Mrs. Norris, who turned her lamp-like eyes upon them and hissed faintly, but Professor McGonagall said, Shoo! Mrs. Norris slunk away into the shadows, and in a few minutes they had reached the stone gargoyle guarding the entrance to Dumbledore's office. Fizzing Wisby, said Professor McGonagall. The gargoyle splang, splang, Hashtag blank. The gargoyle sprang to life and leapt aside. The wall behind it split into two to reveal a stone staircase that was moving continually upward like a spiral escalator. The three of them stepped onto the moving staircase. The wall closed behind them with a thud and they were moving upward in tight circles until they reached the highly polished oak door with the brass knocker shaped like a griffin. Though it was now well past midnight, there were voices coming from inside the room a positive babble of them. It sounded as though Dumbledore were entertaining at least a dozen people. Professor McGonagall rapped three times with the griffin knocker, and the voices ceased abruptly as though someone had switched them all off. The door opened of its own accord and Professor McGonagall led Harry and Ron inside. The room was in half-darkness. The strange silver instruments standing on tables were silent and still, rather than whirring and emitting puffs of smoke as they usually did. The portraits of old headmasters and headmistresses covering the walls were snoozing in their frames. Behind the door, a magnificent red and gold bird, the size of a swan, dozed on its perch, with its head under its wing. Oh, it's you, Professor McGonagall. And, uh... Dumbledore was sitting in a... Oh, <laughs> I read that wrong. Oh, it's you, Professor McGonagall. And... Ah. Dumbledore was sitting in a high-backed chair behind his desk. He leaned forward into the pool of candlelight, illuminating the papers laid out before him. 
He was wearing a magnificently embroidered purple and gold dressing gown over a snowy white nightshirt, but seemed wide awake, his penetrating light blue eyes fixed intently upon Professor McGonagall. Professor Dumbledore, Potter has had a, a well, a nightmare, said Professor McGonagall. He says it wasn't a nightmare, said Harry quickly. Professor McGonagall looked round at Harry, frowning slightly. Very well, then, Potter, you tell the headmaster about it. I, well, I was asleep, said Harry, and even in his terror and his desperation to make Dumbledore understand, he felt slightly irritated that the headmaster was not looking at him, but examining his own interlocked fingers. But it wasn't an ordinary dream. It was real. I saw it happen. He took a deep breath. Ron's dad, Mr. Weasley, has been attacked by a giant snake. The words seemed to reverberate in the air after he had said them. Sounding slightly ridiculous, even comic. There was a pause in which Dumbledore leaned back and stared meditatively at the ceiling. Ron looked from Harry to Dumbledore, white-faced and shocked. "'And how did you see this?' Dumbledore asked quietly, still not looking at Harry. "'Well, I don't know,' said Harry, rather angrily. "'What did it matter? Inside my head, I suppose.' "'You misunderstand me,' said Dumbledore, still in the same calm tone. "'I mean, can you remember um, where you were positioned as you watched the attack happen?' Were you perhaps standing beside the victim, or else looking down at the scene from above? This was such a curious question that Harry gaped at Dumbledore. It was as almost as though it was almost as though he knew. I was the snake, he said. I saw it all from the snake's point of view. Nobody else spoke for a moment. Then Dumbledore, now looking at Ron, who was still way-faced, asked in a new and sharper voice. "'Is Arthur seriously injured?' "'Yes,' said Harry emphatically. "'Why were they all so slow on the uptake? Did they not realize how much a person bled when fangs that long pierced their side? And why could Dumbledore not do the courtesy of looking at him?' Dumbledore stood up so quickly that Harry jumped and addressed one of the old portraits, hanging very near the ceiling. "'Everard!' he said sharply. "'And you too, Dillis!' The sallow-faced wizard with a short with short black bangs and an elderly witch with long silver ringlets in the frame beside him, both of whom seemed to have been in the deepest of sleeps, opened their eyes immediately. "'You were listening,' said Dumbledore. The witch nodded. The wizard said, "'Naturally.' "'The man has red hair and glasses,' said Dumbledore. "'Everard, you will need to raise the alarm. Make sure that he is found by the right people.' Both nodded and moved sideways out of their frames, but instead of emerging in neighboring pictures, as usually happened at Hogwarts, neither reappeared. One frame now contained nothing but a backdrop of dark curtains, the other a handsome leather armchair. Harry noticed that many of the other headmasters and headmistresses on the walls, though snoring and drooling most convincingly, kept sneaking looks at him from under their eyelids, and he suddenly understood who had been talking when they had knocked. 
Everard and Dillis were two of Hogwarts's most celebrated heads, Dumbledore said, now sweeping around Harry, Ron, and Professor McGonagall to approach the magnificent sleeping bird on the perch beside the door. Their renown is such that both have portraits hanging in other important wizarding institutions. And they are free to move between their own portraits. They can tell us what may be happening elsewhere. But Mr. Weasley could be anywhere, said Harry. Please, sit down, all three of you, said Dumbledore, as though Harry had not spoken. Everard and Dillis may not be back for several minutes. Professor McGonagall, if you could draw up extra chairs. Professor McGonagall pulled her wand from the pocket of her dressing gown and waved it. Three chairs appeared out of thin air, straight-backed and wooden, quite unlike the comfortable chintz armchairs that Dumbledore had conjured up at Harry's hearing. Harry sat down, watching Dumbledore over his shoulder. Dumbledore was now stroking Fox's plumed golden head with one finger. The phoenix awoke immediately. He stretched his beautiful head high and observed Dumbledore through bright, dark eyes. We will need, Dumbledore said very quietly to the bird, a warning. There was a flash of fire, and the phoenix was gone. Dumbledore now swooped over upon one of his fragile silver instruments, whose function Harry had never known, carried it over to his desk, sat down facing them again, and tapped it lightly with the tip of his wand. The instrument tinkled into life at once with rhythmic clinking noises. Tiny puffs of pale green smoke issued from the minuscule silver tube at the top. Dumbledore watched the smoke closely. His brow furrowed. After a few seconds, the tiny puffs became a steady stream of smoke that thickened and coiled in the air. A serpent's head grew out of the end of it, opening its mouth wide. Harry wondered whether the instrument was confirming his story. He looked eagerly at Dumbledore for a sign that he was right, but Dumbledore did not look up. Naturally, naturally, murmured Dumbledore, apparently to himself, still observing the, steam of s the stream of smoke without the slightest sign of surprise. But in essence divided. Harry could make neither head nor tail of this question. The smoke serpent, however, split itself instantly into two snakes, both coiling and undulating in the dark air. With a look of grim satisfaction, Dumbledore gave the instruments another gentle tap with his wand. The clinking noise slowed and died, and the smoke serpent grew faint. Then they became formless, formless haze and vanished. Dumbledore placed the instruments on his spindly little table. Harry saw many of the old headmasters in the portraits follow him again with their eyes. Then, realizing that Harry was watching them, pretended to be sleeping again. Harry wanted to ask what the strange silver instrument was for, but before he could do so, there was a shout from the top of the wall to their right. The wizard called Everard had reappeared in his portrait, panting slightly. <sighs> Dumbledore. What news? said Dumbledore at once. I yelled until I heard someone coming, said the wizard, who was mopping his brow on the curtain behind him. I said I'd heard something moving downstairs. They weren't sure whether to believe me, but they went down to check. You know, there are no portraits down there to watch from. Anyway, they carried him up a few minutes later. He doesn't look good. He's covered in blood. I ran along to 
Elfrida Craig's portrait to get a view as they left. Good, said Delor Dolores, said Dumbledore as Ron made a convulsive movement. I take it that Dillish will have seen him arrive then. And moments later, the silver-haired, ringleted witch, name of Dillis, had appeared in her picture too. She sank, coughing, into her armchair and said, Yes, they've taken him to St. Mungo's, Dumbledore. They carried him past my portrait. He looks bad. Thank you, said Dumbledore. He looked round at Professor McGonagall. Minerva, I need you to go and wake the other Weasley children. Of course. Professor McGonagall got up and moved swiftly to the door. Harry cast a sideways glance at Ron, who was looking terrified. And Dumbledore, what about Molly? said Professor McGonagall, pausing at the door. That will be a job for Fox when he has finished keeping a lookout for anybody approaching, said Dumbledore. But she may already know. That excellent clock of hers. Harry knew that Dumbledore was referring to the clock that told not the time, but the whereabouts and conditions of the various Weasley family members. And with a pang, he thought that Mr. Weasley's hand must even now be pointing at mortal peril. But it was very late. Mrs. Weasley was probably asleep, not watching the clock. Harry felt cold as he remembered Mrs. Weasley's boggart turning into Mr. Weasley's lifeless body, his glasses askew, blood running down his face. But Mr. Weasley wasn't going to die. He couldn't. Dumbledore was now rummaging in a cupboard behind Harry and Ron. He emerged from it carrying a blackened old kettle which he placed carefully on his desk. He raised his wand and murmured, Portus! For a moment the kettle trembled, glowing with an odd blue light, then it quivered to a rest, as solidly black as ever. Dumbledore marched over to another portrait, this time of a clever-looking wizard with a pointed beard, who had been painted wearing a Slytherin robe of green and silver, and was apparently sleeping so badly... No. Oh, and was apparently sleeping so deeply he could not hear Dumbledore's voice when he attempted to rouse him. Phineas! Phineas! The subjects of the portrait lying in the room were no longer pretending to be asleep. They were shifting around in their frames, the better to watch what was happening. When the clever-looking wizard continued to feign sleep, some of them shouted his name too. Phineas! 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 He could not pretend any longer. He gave a theatrical jerk and opened his eyes wide. Oh! Did someone call? I need you to visit your other portrait again, Phineas, said Dumbledore. I've got another message. Visit my other portrait, said Phineas in a reedy voice, giving a long, fake yawn. His eyes traveled around the room, focusing on Harry. Oh no, Dumbledore, I'm too tired tonight. Something about Phineas's voice was sounding familiar to Harry. Where had he heard it before? But he couldn't think of it before the portrait surrounding the walls broke into a storm of protest. Insubordination, sir, roared a corpulent red-nosed wizard, branching his fists. Dereliction of duty! We are honor-bound to give service to the present 
headmaster of Hogwarts, cried a frail-looking old wizard who Harry recognized as Dumbledore's predecessor, Armando Dippet. Shame on you, Phineas. Shall I persuade him, Dumbledore? called a gimlet-eyed witch, raising an unusually thick wand that looked not unlike a birch rod. Oh, very well, said the wizard called Phineas, eyeing the wand with mild apprehension. Though he may well have destroyed my portrait by now, he's done away with most of the family. Sirius knows not to destroy your portrait, said Dumbledore, and Harry realized immediately where he had heard Phineas's voice before, issuing from the apparently empty frame in his bedroom in Grimaud Place. You are to give him the message that Arthur Weasley has been gravely injured, and that his wife, children, and Harry Potter will be arriving at his house shortly. Do you understand? Arthur Weasley, injured, wife and children, and Harry Potter coming to stay, repeated Phineas in a bored voice. Yes, yes, very well. He sloped away into the frame, out of the portrait, and disappeared from view at the very moment that the study door opened again. Fred, George, and Ginny were ushered inside by Professor McGonagall, all three of them looking disheveled and shocked, still in their night things. Harry, what's going on? asked Ginny, who looked rather frightened. Professor McGonagall says that you saw Dad get hurt. Your father has been taken in the course of his work for the... Oh boy. Your father has been injured in the course of his work for the Order of the Phoenix, said Dumbledore, before Harry could speak. He has been taken to St. Mungo's Hospital for Magical Maladies and Injuries. I am sending you back to Sirius's house, which is much more convenient to the hospital than the borough. You will meet your mother there. How are we going? asked Fred, looking shaken. Flu powder? No, said Dumbledore. Flu powder is not safe at the moment. The network is being watched. You will be taking a port key. He indicated the old kettle lying innocently on his desk. We are just waiting for Phineas Nigellus to report back. I want to be sure that the coast is clear before sending you. There was a flash of flame in the very middle of the office, leaving behind a single golden feather that floated gently to the floor. That is Fox's warning, said Dumbledore catching the feather as it fell. Professor Umbridge must know that you are out of your beds. Minerva, go and head her off. Tell her any story. Professor McGonagall was gone in a swish of tartan. He says he'll be delighted, said a bored voice behind Dumbledore. The wizard called Phineas had reappeared in front of his Slytherin banner. My great-great-grandson has always had an odd taste in house guests. Come here, then, Dumbledore said to Harry and the Weasleys, and quickly, before anyone else joins us. Harry and the others gathered around Dumbledore's desk. You have all used a port key before, asked Dumbledore, and they nodded, each reaching out to touch some part of the blackened kettle. Good. On the count of three, then. One, two... It happened in a fraction of a second. The infinitesimal pause before Dumbledore said three. Harry looked up at him. They were very close together, and Dumbledore's clear blue gaze moved from the portkey to Harry's face. 
At once, Harry's scar burned white-hot, as though the old wound had burst open again, and, unbidden, unwanted, but terrifyingly strong, there rose within Harry a hatred so powerful he felt that, for an instant, he would like nothing better than to strike, to bite, to sink his fangs into the man before him. Three! Harry felt a powerful jerk behind his navel, the ground vanishing from beneath his feet. His hand was glued to the kettle. He was banging into the others as they all sped forward into a swirl of colors and a rush of wind, the kettle pulling them onward, until his feet hit the ground so hard his knees buckled. The kettle clattered to the ground, and somewhere close at hand a voice said, Back again, the blood traitor brats. Is it true that their father's dying? Oh, I, I took that to uh, be probably Sirius's mother, and I was wrong. Back again, the blood traitor brats. Is it true that their father is dying? Out, said a second voice. Harry scrambled to his feet and looked around. They had arrived in the gloomy basement kitchen of number 12 Grimald Place. The only sources of light were the fire and one guttering candle which illuminated the remains of a solitary supper. Creature was disappearing through the door to the hall, looking back at them malevolently as he hitched up his loincloth. Sirius was hurrying toward them all, looking anxious. He was unshaven and still in his day clothes. There was also a slightly mundungus-like whiff of stale drink about him. "'What's going on?' he said, stretching out a hand to help Ginny up. Phineas Nigellus said Arthur's been badly injured.' "'Ask Harry,' said Fred. "'Yeah, I want to hear this for myself,' said George. The twins and Ginny were staring at him. Creature's footsteps had stopped on the stairs outside. "'It was—' Harry began. This was even worse than telling McGonagall and Dumbledore. "'I had a—' kind of vision. And he told them all what he had seen, though he altered the story so it sounded as though he had watched from the sidelines as the snake attacked, rather than being behind the snake's own eyes. Ron, who was still very white, gave him a fleeting look but did not speak. When Harry had finished, Fred, George, and Ginny continued to stare at him for a moment. Harry did not know whether he was imagining it or not, but he fancied that there was something accusatory in their looks. Well, if they were going to blame him for just seeing the attack, he was glad he had not told them that he had been inside the snake at the time. "'Is Mum here?' said Fred, turning to Sirius. "'She probably doesn't even know what's happened yet,' said Sirius. "'The important thing is to get you away before Umbridge could interfere. I expect Dumbledore's letting Molly know right now.' We've got to go to St. Mungo's, said Ginny urgently. She looked around at her brothers. They were still in their pajamas. Sirius, could you lend us cloaks or anything? Hang on, you can't go tearing off to St. Mungo's, said Sirius. Of course we can go to St. Mungo's if we want, said Fred with a mulish expression. He's our dad. And how are you going to explain how you knew Arthur was attacked before the hospital even let his wife know? What does that matter? said George hotly. It matters if we don't want to draw attention to the fact that Harry is having visions of things that are happening hundreds of miles away, said Sirius angrily. You got any idea what the Ministry would make of that information? 
Fred and George looked as though they could not care less what the ministry made of anything. Ron was still ashen-faced and silent. Ginny said, Somebody else could have told us. We could have heard it from somewhere other than Harry. Like who? said Sirius impatiently. Listen, your dad's been hurt on duty for the order. The circumstances are fishy enough without his children knowing about it seconds after it happened. You could seriously damage the orders. We don't care about the dumb order, shouted Fred. It's our dad dying we're talking about, yelled George. Your father knew what he was getting into, and he didn't. Th he won't thank you for messing things up for the order, said Sirius, equally angry. This is how it is. This is why you're not in the order. You don't understand. There are things worth dying for. Easy for you to say, stuck here, bellowed Fred. I don't see you risking your neck. The little color remaining in Sirius's face drained from it. He looked for a moment as though he would like to hit Fred, but when he spoke, it was in a voice of determined calm. I know it's hard, but we've all got to act as though we don't know anything yet. We've got to stay put. At least until we hear from your mother, all right? Fred and George still looked mutinous. Ginny, however, took a few steps toward the nearest chair and sank into it. Harry looked at Ron, who made a funny movement somewhere between a nod and a shrug, and they sat down too. The twins glared at Sirius for another minute, then took seats on either side of Ginny. That's right, said Sirius encouragingly. Come on, let's all... Let's all have a drink, or waiting. Accio Butterbeer. He raised his wand as he spoke and sent a dozen bottles. He raised his wand as he spoke, and half a dozen bottles came flying toward them out of the pantry, skidding along the table, scattering the debris of Sirius's meal, and stopping neatly in front of the six of them. They all drank, and for a while the only sounds were those of the crackling kitchen fire and the soft thud of their bottles on the table. Harry was only drinking to have something to do with his hands. His stomach was full of horrible, hot, bubbling guilt. They would not be here if it weren't for him. They would all still be asleep in bed. And it was no good telling himself that by raising the alarm he had ensured that Mr. Weasley was found, because... There was also the inescapable business of it being he who had attacked Mr. Weasley in the first place. Don't be stupid, you haven't got fangs, he told himself, trying to keep calm, though the hand on his butterbeer bottle was shaking. You weren't lying in Dumbledore's office. You weren't attacking anyone. But then what just happened in Dumbledore's office, he asked himself. I felt like I wanted to attack Dumbledore, too. He put the bottle down a little harder than he had meant to, and it slopped over the table. No one took any notice. Then a burst of fire in midair illuminated the dirty plates in front of them, and they gave, as they gave cries of shock, a scroll of parchment fell on the table with a thud, accompanied by a single golden phoenix tail feather. Fox, said Sirius at once, snatching up the parchment. It's not Dumbledore's writing. Must be a message from your mother. Here. He thrust the letter into George's hand, who ripped it open and read aloud, Dad is still alive. I'm setting out for St. Mongo's now. Stay where you are. I'll send news as soon as I can. Mum.
George looked around the table. Still alive, he said slowly. But that makes it sound... He didn't need to finish the sentence. It sounded to Harry, too, as though Mr. Weasley were hovering somewhere between life and death. Still exceptionally pale, Ron stared back at his mother's letter as though it might speak words of comfort to him. Fred pulled the parchment out of George's hands and read it for himself, then looked up at Harry. He felt his hand shaking on his butterbeer bottle again and clenched it more tightly to stop the trembling. If Harry had ever sat through a longer night than this one, he could not remember it. Sirius suggested once, without any real conviction, that they should all go to bed, but the Weasleys' looks of disgust were answer enough. They mostly sat in silence around the table, watching the candle wick sinking lower and lower into liquid wax, occasionally raising a bottle to their lips, speaking only to check the time, to wonder aloud what was happening, and to reassure each other that if there were bad news they would know straight away, for Mrs. Weasley must have long since arrived at St. Mungo's. Fred fell into a doze, his head lolling sideways onto his shoulder. Ginny was curled like Ginny was curled like a cat on her chair, but her eyes were open. Harry could see them reflecting the firelight. Ron was sitting with his head in his hands. Whether awake or asleep, it was impossible to tell. Harry and Sirius looked at each other every so often. Intruders upon the family grief. Waiting waiting. At ten past five in the morning by Ron's watch, the kitchen door swung open and Mrs. Weasley entered the kitchen. She was extremely pale, but when they all turned to look at her, Fred, Ron, and Harry half rising from their chairs, she gave a wan smile. Oh, he's going to be all right, she said, her voice weak with tiredness. He's sleeping. We can all go and see him later. Bill's sitting with him now. He's going to take the morning off work. Fred fell back into his chair with his hands over his face. George and Ginny got up, walked swiftly over to their mother, and hugged her. Fred, nope. Ron gave a very shaky laugh and downed the rest of his butterbeer and won. Breakfast, said Sirius loudly and joyfully, jumping to his feet. Where's that accursed house elf? Creature! Creature! But Creature did not answer the summons. Ah, oh, forget it then, muttered Sirius, counting the people in front of him. So it's breakfast for, let's see, seven bacon and eggs, I think, some tea and toast. Harry hurried over to the stove to help. He did not want to intrude on the Weasley's happiness. and he dreaded the moment when Mrs. Weasley would ask him to recount his visions. However, he had barely taken the plates from the dresser when Mrs. Weasley lifted them out of his hands and pulled him into a hug. I don't know what would have happened if you hadn't... if it hadn't been for you, Harry, she said in a muffled voice. He might not have found Arthur for hours, and then it might have been too late, but thanks to you, he's alive, and Dumbledore has been able to think up a good cover story for Arthur being where he was. You've got no idea what trouble he would have been in otherwise. Look, look at poor Sturgis. Harry could hardly bear her gratitude, but fortunately she soon released him to turn to Sirius and thank him for looking after her children through the night. 
Sirius said he was very pleased to have been any help, and hoped that they would all stay with him as long as Mr. Weasley was in the hospital. Oh, Sirius, I'm so grateful. I think he'll be there for a little while, and it would be wonderful to be nearer. Of course, that might mean we're here for Christmas. The more, the merrier, said Sirius with such obvious sincerity that Mrs. Weasley beamed at him, threw an apron on, and began to help him with breakfast. Sirius, Harry muttered, unable to contain it a moment longer. Can I have a quick word? Uh, now? He walked into the dark pantry, and Sirius followed. Without preamble, Harry told his godfather every detail of the vision that he had had, including the fact that he himself had been the snake who had attacked Mr. Weasley. When he paused for breath, Sirius said, Did Dumbledore tell you this? Oh, that doesn't make any sense. Did you tell Dumbledore this? Yes, said Harry impatiently, but he didn't tell me what it meant. Well, he doesn't tell me anything anymore. I'm sure he would have told you if he knew anything about it, if there were anything to worry about. No, that's important, sorry. I'm sure he would have told you if there was anything to worry about, said Sirius steadily. But that's not all, said Harry in a voice only a little bit above a whisper. Sirius, I, th I think I'm going mad. Back in Dumbledore's office, just before we took the portkey, for a couple of seconds, I thought I was a snake. I felt like one. My scar really hurt when I was looking at Dumbledore. Sirius, I, I wanted to attack him. He could see only a sliver of Sirius's face. The rest was in darkness. Must have been... The aftermath of the vision, that's all, said Sirius. You were still thinking of the dream, and whatever it was, and... It wasn't that, said Harry, shaking his head. It was like something rose up inside me. Like there's a snake inside me. You need to sleep, said Sirius firmly. You're gonna have breakfast, then go upstairs... And after lunch, you can go and see Arthur with the others. You're in shock, Harry. You're blaming yourself for something you only witnessed, and it's lucky you did witness it or Arthur might have died. Just stop worrying. He clapped Harry on the shoulder and left the pantry, leaving Harry standing alone in the dark. Everyone but Harry spent the rest of the summer sleeping. Oh, he went up to the bedroom that he and Ron had shared over the last few weeks of summer, but while Ron crawled into bed and was asleep within minutes, Harry sat fully clothed, hunched against the cold metal bars of the bedstead, keeping himself deliberately uncomfortable, determined not to fall into a doze, terrified that he might become the serpent again in his sleep, and to awake to find that he had attacked Ron or else slithered through the house after one of the others. When Ron woke up, Harry pretended to have enjoyed a refreshing nap, too. Their trunks arrived from Hogwarts while they were eating lunch. They could dress as muggles for the trip to St. Mungo's. Everybody except Harry was riotously happy and talkative as they changed out of their robes into jeans and sweatshirts. When Tonks and Mad-Eye turned out to escort them across London, they greeted them gleefully. Laughing at the bowler hat Mad-Eye was wearing in an angle to conceal his magical eye, and reassuring him truthfully that Tonks, whose hair was short and bright pink again, would attract far less attention on the underground. 
Skunks was very interested in Harry's vision of the attack on Mr. Weasley, something that Harry was not remotely interested in discussing. You don't think that there's any seer blood in your family, is there? She encountered. Encountered. She inquired curiously as they sat side by side on a train rattling toward the heart of the city. No, said Harry, thinking of Professor Trelawney and feeling insulted. No, said Tonks musingly. No, I suppose it's not really prophecy that you're doing, is it? I mean, you're not seeing the future, you're seeing the present. It's odd, though, isn't it? Useful. Useful. Harry did not answer. Fortunately, they got out at the next stop, a station in the very heart of London, and the bustle of leaving the train, he was allowed... He was able to allow Fred and George to get between himself and Tonks, who was leading the way. They all followed her up the escalator, Moody clunking along at the back of the group, his bowler tilted low, and one gnarled hand stuck in between the buttons of his coat, clutching his wand. Harry thought he sensed the concealed eye staring hard at them, at him. Trying to avoid any further questions about his dream, he asked Mad-Eye where St. Mungo's was hidden. Not far from here, grunted Moody as they stepped into the wintry air on a broad, store-lined street packed with Christmas shoppers. He pushed Harry a little ahead of him and stumped along just behind. Harry knew that the eye was rolling in all directions just under the tilted hat. Wasn't easy to find a good location for a hospital. Nowhere in Diagon Alley is big enough. We couldn't have it underground like the Ministry. Wouldn't be healthy. In the end, they managed to get a hold of a building up here. There he was, sick wizards could come in and go, just to blend in with the crowd. He seized Harry's shoulder to prevent them being separated by a gaggle of shoppers, plainly intent on nothing but making it to the nearby shop full of electrical gadgets. Here we go, said Moody a moment later. They had arrived outside a large, old-fashioned, red-brick department store called Purge and Dow's Limited. The place had a shabby, miserable air. The window displays consisted of a few chipped dummies with their wigs askew, standing at random and modeling, fashion, modeling fashions at least ten years out of date. Large signs on the dusty doors read, Closed for Refurbishment. Harry distinctly heard a large woman laden with plastic shopping bags say to her friend as they passed, It's never open, that place. Right, said Tonks, beckoning them toward a window displaying nothing but a particularly ugly female dummy. Its false eyelashes were hanging off and it was modeling a green nylon pinafore dress. Everybody ready? They nodded, clustering around her. Moody gave Harry another shove between the shoulder blades to urge him forward, and Tonks leaned close to the glass, looking up at the very ugly dummy, her breath steaming up the glass. Watcha. We're here to see Arthur Weasley. Harry thought how absurd it was for Tonks to expect the dummy to hear her talking so quietly through a sheet of glass, with buses rumbling along behind her and all the racket of a street full of shoppers. Then he reminded himself that dummies couldn't hear anyway. Next second, his mouth opened in shock as the dummy gave a slight nod and beckoned with its pointed finger, with, excuse me, with its jointed finger, and Tonks had seized Ginny and Mrs. Weasley by the elbows, stepped right through the glass, and vanished. Fred, George, and Ron stepped after them. 
Harry glanced around at the jostling crowd. Not one of them seemed to have had a glance to spare for the window displays, as ugly as those of Purge and Douse Limited. Nor did any of them seem to have noticed that six people had just melted into thin air in front of them. "'Come on,' growled Moody, giving Harry yet another poke in the back, and together they stepped forward through what felt like a sheet of cool water, emerging quite warm and dry on the other side. There was no sign of the ugly dummy or the space where she had stood. They were in what seemed to be a crowded reception area where rows of witches and wizards sat upon rickety wooden chairs, some looking perfectly normal and perusing out-of-date copies of Witch Weekly, others sporting gruesome disfigurements, such as elephant trunks or extra hands sticking out of their chests. The room was scarcely less quiet than the street outside, for many of the patients were making very peculiar noises. A sweaty-faced witch in the front of the center row, who was fanning herself vigorously with a copy of the Daily Prophet, kept letting off a high-pitched whistle as steam came pouring out of her mouth. A grubby-looking warlock in the corner clanged like a bell every time he moved, and with each clang, his head vibrated so horribly he had to seize himself by the ears to hold it steady. Witches and wizards in lime-green robes were walking up and down the rows, asking questions and making notes on clipboards like umbrages. Harry noticed that there was an emblem embroidered on their chests, a wand and bone crossed. Are they doctors? he asked Ron quietly. Doctors? said Ron, looking startled. Those muggle nutters that cut people up. No, they're healers. Over here, called Mrs. Weasley through the renewed clanging of the warlock in the corner, and they followed her to the queue in front of a plump blonde witch seated at a desk marked Enquiries. It's pronounced Inquiries. We'll try that one. The wall behind her was covered in notices and posters saying things like, A clean cauldron keeps potions from becoming poisons, and antidotes are anti-don'ts, unless approved by a qualified healer. There was also a large portrait of a witch with long silver ringlets, which was labeled Dillis Derwent, St. Mungo's Healer, 1722-1738, headmister, headmistress of Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry, 1741-1781. That's right, Coop. Dillis was eyeing the Weasley party closely as though counting them, when Harry caught her eye, she gave a tiny wink, walked sideways out of her portrait, and vanished. Meanwhile, at the front of the queue, a young wizard was performing an odd, on-the-spot jig, and trying, in between yelps of pain, to explain his predicament to the witch behind the desk. It's these, ouch, shoes that my brother gave me. Oh, they're, they're eating away my, ouch, feet, look at them. There must be some kind of, oh, jinx on them, and I can't oh, get them off. He hopped from one foot to the other as though dancing on hot coals. "'The shoes don't prevent you from reading, do they?' said the blonde witch, irritably pointing at a large sign at the left of her desk. "'You want spell damage, fourth floor, just like it says on the floor guide. Next.' As the wizard hobbled and pranced out of the way, the Weasley party moved forward a few steps, and Harry read the floor guide. "'Artifact accidents, ground floor. Cauldron explosions, wand backfiring, room crashes, etc. Creature-induced injuries, first floor. Bites, stings, burns, embedded spines, etc. Magical bugs, second floor. 
contagious maladies, e.g. dragonpox, vanishing sickness, scrojungulus, etc. Potion and plant poisoning, third floor. Rashes, regurgitation, uncontrollable, etc. Spell damage, fourth floor. Unliftable jinxes, hexes, and incorrectly applied charms, etc. Visitors, tea room, and hospital shop, fifth floor. If you are unsure where to go, incapable of normal speech, or unable to remember why you are here, our welcome witch will be pleased to help. A very old, stooped wizard with hearing trumpets had shuffled to the front of the queue now. I'm here to see Bodrick Brode! Eh, Broderick Bode! He wheezed. Ward 49, I'm afraid you're wasting your time, said the witch dismissively. He's completely addled, you know. He still thinks he's a teapot. Next. A harassed-looking wizard was holding his small daughter tightly by the ankle while she flapped around his head using the immensely large feathery wings that had sprouted right from the back of her romper suit. Fourth floor, said the witch in a bored voice without asking, and the man disappeared through the double doors behind the desk, holding his daughter like an oddly-shaped balloon. Next. Mrs. Weasley moved forward to the desk. Hello. Uh, my husband, Arthur Weasley, was supposed to be moved to a different ward this morning. Could you tell us? Arthur Weasley, said the witch, running her finger down a long list in front of her. Yes, first floor, second door on the right. Die Lewin ward. Thank you, said Mrs. Weasley. Come on, you lot. They followed her through the double doors along the narrow corridor behind, which was which was lined with more portraits of famous healers and lit by crystal bubbles full of candles that floated on the ceiling, like giant soap suds. More witches and wizards in lime-green robes walked in and out of the doors as they passed. A foul-smelling yellow gas wafted into the passageway as they passed one door, and every now and then they heard distant wailing. They climbed a flight of stairs and entered the creature-induced injuries corridor, where the second door on the right bore the words, Dangerous Die Llewellyn Ward. Serious bites. Underneath this was underneath this was a card with a brass holder on it, which had been handwritten. Oh boy! As you can see, as time goes on, my uh, my ability to read properly decays a bit. Underneath was a brass card, which had been handwritten: Healer in Charge, Hippocrates Smethwick, Trainee Healer Augustus Pye. We'll wait outside, Molly, Tonk said. Arthur won't want too many visitors at once. It ought to be just family first. Mad-Eye growled in his approval of this idea and set himself with his back against the corridor wall, his magical eyes spinning in all directions. Harry drew back too, but Mrs. Weasley reached out a hand and pushed him through the door, saying, Don't be silly, Harry. Arthur wants to thank you. The ward was... Small and rather dingy, as the only window was narrow and set high in the wall facing the door. Most of the light came from more shining crystal bubbles clustered in the middle of the ceiling. The walls were paneled oak, and there was a portrait of a rather vicious-looking wizard on the wall, captioned, Urquhart Rockharrow, 1612 to 1697, inventor of the Entrail Expelling Curse. There were only three patients. Mr. Weasley was occupying the bed at the far end of the ward beside the tiny window. 
Harry was pleased and relieved to see that he was propped up on several pillows and reading the Daily Prophet by the solitary ray of sunlight falling onto his bed. He looked up as they walked toward him and, seeing who he was, he, seeing who it was, beamed. Hello, he called, throwing the prophet aside. Bill just left. Molly had to get back to work, but uh, he says it'll drop in on you later. How are you, Arthur? said Mrs. Weasley, bending down to kiss his cheek and looking anxiously into his face. You're still looking a bit peaky. I feel absolutely fine, said Mr. Weasley brightly, holding out his good arm to give Ginny a hug. If they'd only take these bandages off me, I'd be off home. Why can't they let you take them off? Well, oh boy. Why can't they take them off, Dad? Asked Fred. Well, I start bleeding like mad every time they try, said Mr. Weasley cheerfully, reaching across for his wand, which lay on his bedside cabinet, and waving it so that six extra chairs appeared at his bedside to seat them all. It seems that there was rather unusual poison in that snake's fang that kept the wounds open. They're sure that they'll find an antidote, though, they say they've had much worse cases than mine, and in the meantime I'll just have to keep taking blood replenishing potion every hour. But that man over there, he said, dropping his voice and nodding toward the bed opposite, in which a man lay, looking green and sickly, staring at the ceiling. Bitten by a werewolf, poor chap. No cure at all. A werewolf? whispered Mrs. Weasley, looking alarmed. Is he safe in a public ward? Shouldn't he be in a private room? It's two full weeks till the full moon, Mr. Weasley reminded her quietly. They've been talking to him this morning, the healers. You know, they're trying to persuade him that he'll be able to lead an almost normal life. I said to him, I didn't mention any names, of course, but I said I knew a werewolf personally. Very nice man, who finds the condition quite easy to manage. What did he say? asked George. He said he'll give me another bite if I don't shut up, said Mr. Weasley sadly. And that woman over there, he indicated the only other occupied bed which was right beside the door, won't tell the healers what bitter, which makes us all think that it must have been something she was handling illegally. Whatever it was took a real chunk out of her leg. Very nasty smell when they take off the dressings. So you gonna tell us what happened, Dad? asked Fred, pulling his chair closer to the bed. Well, you already know, don't you? said Mr. Weasley, with a significant smile at Harry. It's very simple. I'd had a long day. I dozed off, got sneaked up on and bitten. Is it in the profit, you being attacked? asked Fred, indicating the newspaper Mr. Weasley had cast aside. No, of course not said Mr. Weasley, with a slightly bitter smile. The Ministry wouldn't want everyone to know what that great dirty serpent got. Arthur, said Mrs. Weasley. Got, uh, me, Mr. Weasley said hastily, though Harry was quite sure that was not what he had been meant, not what he had been about to say. So where were you when it happened, Dad? said George. Uh, that's my business, said Mr. Weasley, through a small smile. He snatched up the Daily Prophet, shook it open again, and said, I was just reading about Willie Widdershin's arrest when you arrived. 
You know, Willie turned out to be one of those regurgitating... You know, Willie turned out to be behind those regurgitating toilets back in the summer. One of his jinxes backfired. The toilet exploded and they found him lying unconscious in the wreckage covered from head to foot in... What were you... When you say that you were on duty, Fred interrupted in a low voice, what were you doing? You heard your father, whispered Mrs. Weasley. We're not discussing this here. Go on about Willie Widdishins, Arthur. Well, don't ask me how, but he actually got off the toilet charge, said Mr. Weasley grimly. I can only suppose that gold changed hands. You were guarding it, weren't you? said George quietly. The weapon. The thing that you know who is after. George, be quiet, snapped Mrs. Weasley. Anyway, said Mr. Weasley in a raised voice, this time Willie has been caught selling baited, do biting doorknobs to muggles. And I don't think he'll be able to worm his way out of this one, because according to the article, two muggles have lost fingers and are now in St. Mungo's for emergency bone regrowth and memory modification. Just think of it. Muggles in St. Mungo's. I wonder which ward they're in. Neddy looked around eagerly, as though hoping to see a signpost. Didn't you say that you know who's got a snake, Harry? Asked Fred, looking at his father for a reaction. A massive one. You saw it the night that he returned, didn't you? That's enough, said Mrs. Weasley crossly. Mad Iron Tonks are outside, Arthur. They want to come in and see you. And you lot can wait outside, she added to her children and to Harry. You can come in and say goodbye afterwards. Go on. They trooped back into the corridor. Mad Iron Tonks went in and closed the door of the ward behind them. Fred raised his eyebrows. Fine, he said coolly, rummaging in his pockets. Be like that. Don't tell us anything. Are you looking for these? said George, holding out what looked like a tangle of flesh-colored string. Yeah, you read my mind, said Fred, grinning. Let's see if St. Mungo's puts imperturbable charms on its ward doors, shall we? He and George disentangled the string and separated five extendable ears from each other. Fred and George handed them around. Harry hesitated to take one. Go on, Harry, take it. You saved Dad's life. If anyone's got a right to eavesdrop on him, it's you. Grinning, in spite of himself, Harry took the end of the string and inserted it into his ear as the twins had done. Okay, go, Fred whispered. The flesh-colored strings wriggled like long, skinny worms and snaked under the door. At first, Harry could hear nothing. He jumped as he heard Tonks whispering as clearly as though she were standing right beside him. I searched the old area, but I couldn't find a snake anywhere. It just seems to have vanished after it attacked you, Arthur. But you know who can't have expected a snake to get in at, can he? I reckon he sent it as a lookout, growled Moody. Because he's not had any luck so far, has he? No. I reckon he's trying to get a clearer picture of what he's facing, and if Arthur hadn't been there, the beast would have had more time to look around. So, Potter says he saw it all happen. Yes said Mrs. Weasley. She sounded rather uneasy. You know, Dumbledore seems almost to have been waiting for Harry to see something like this. Yeah, well, said Moody, there's something funny about that Potter kid. 
We all know that. Dumbledore seemed worried about Harry when I spoke to him this morning, whispered Mrs Weasley. Because he's worried, growled Moody. The boy is seeing things. From inside you know who's snake. Obviously Potter doesn't realise what that means, but if you know who's possessing him... Harry pulled the extendable ear out of his own, his heart hammering very fast and heat rushing up to his face. He looked around at the others. They were all staring at him, the strings still trailing from their ears, looking suddenly fearful. And that's the end of the chapter. As you guys have seen from some of my social media stuff, I've put out a request for anyone doing projects who need voices. I am available to do voices. Um, go ahead and check out the posts. I've got them on YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, um, uh, Instagram. Um, I'm interested if you guys, if anyone has a, a game that they're designing or they've got an animation reel that they're working on or they, they've made a, a documentary or something they need, need a narrator for. Um, I sing too, believe it or not. So if there's anything that anyone is interested in uh, slapping a voice onto, even multiple voices, I am very interested. So um, I really appreciate everyone's feedback. That's kind of what made me brave enough to pull the trigger on this. Um, go ahead and uh, check out those posts. I'm also going to be posting a um, a poll because, as you guys can tell about the uh, the timing tonight, um, we went a little long. So I'm interested in perhaps um, uh, running a bit earlier. But I'm gonna I'm gonna post a poll about it. It might be that I just pull the trigger on it um, as opposed to you know like I, I will need to take my own needs into account as well. So. Um, do uh, check out uh, those posts as they go up, and definitely check out the Discord. I think that's going to be the last thing for tonight. Um, it has been great to talk to you all, but it is pretty late. So um, let me get a Discord link put into YouTube chat. Bop, bop, bop. There you go. Um, and uh, yeah, come and join me. I'll be hanging out in there uh, via text for a little while. I do have to uh, turn off the stream at some point. Got to pump the brakes on the old on the old sidecar. But thank you so much, um, my my literary passengers, for for coming along with me on this journey. It's been great, um, and I will uh, I will keep you updated via probably mostly via YouTube and Discord about uh, how things will go over the next two weeks. So. Thank you all for listening. Have a wonderful night. I would love to say goodbye to each one of you individually, but that'll take a long time. I really do appreciate you all. And I bid thee a lovely week. And for those of you who celebrate it, a very Merry Christmas. Bye-bye.